Part 3, Chapter 1, Section 115 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3, History of the Passion, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 1, Relation of Jesus to the Idea of a Suffering and Dying Messiah, His Discourses on His Death, Resurrection, and Second Advent. Section 115. The Discourses of Jesus on His Second Advent. Criticism of the Different Interpretations. Not only did Jesus, according to the evangelical accounts, predict that he should return to life three days after his death, but also that at a later period, in the midst of the calamities which would issue in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, he should come in the clouds of heaven to close the present period of the world, and, by a general judgment, open the future age. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 17 verses 22 through 37, chapter 21 verses 5 through 36. As Jesus, for the last time, went out of the temple, Luke has not this circumstance, and his disciples, Luke says indefinitely, some, admiringly drew his attention to the magnificent building, he assured them that all which they then looked on would be destroyed from its foundations. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, and parallel passages. On the question of the disciples, when this would happen, and what would be the sign of the Messiah's coming, which in their idea was associated with such a crisis, verse 3, Jesus warns them not to be deceived by persons falsely giving themselves out to be the Messiah, and by the notion that the expected catastrophe must follow immediately on the first prognostics, for wars and rumors of war, risings of nation against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, famine, pestilence, and earthquakes in diverse places, would be only the beginning of the sorrows which were to precede the advent of the Messiah. Verses 4-8 through eight. They themselves, his adherents, must first suffer hatred, persecution, and the sword, perfidy, treachery, deception by false prophets, lukewarmness, and general corruption of morals, would prevail among men. But, at the same time, the news of the Messiah's kingdom must be promulgated through the whole world. Only after all this could the end of the present period of the world arrive, until when he who would partake of the blessedness of the future must endure with constancy. Verses 9-14 through 14. A nearer presage of this catastrophe would be the fulfillment of the oracle of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27, the standing of the abomination of desolation in the holy place. According to Luke chapter 21, verse 20, the encompassing of Jerusalem with armies. When this should take place, it would be high time for the most precipitate flight, according to Luke, because the devastation of Jerusalem would be at hand, an event which he more nearly particularizes in the address of Jesus to the city, chapter 19, verse 43 and following, 
thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another at this juncture all who should have hindrances to rapid departure would be deserving of compassion and it would be in the highest degree desirable that the recommended flight should not fall in an unfavorable season for then would commence unexampled tribulation according to luke verse twenty four consisting chiefly in many of the people of israel perishing by the sword in others being carried away captive and in jerusalem being trodden down of the gentiles for a predetermined period a tribulation which only the merciful abridgment of its duration by god for the sake of the elect could render supportable verses fifteen through twenty two at this time would arise false prophets and messiahs seeking to delude by miracles and signs and promising to show the messiah in this or that place whereas a messiah who was concealed anywhere and must be sought out could not be the true one for his advent would be like the lightning a sudden and universal revelation of which the central point would be jerusalem the object of punishment on account of its sin verses twenty three through twenty eight immediately after this time of tribulation the darkening of the sun and moon the falling of the stars and of the shaking of all the powers of heaven would usher in the appearance of the messiah who to the dismay of the dwellers on the earth would come with great glory in the clouds of heaven and immediately send forth his angels to gather together his elect from all the corners of the earth verses twenty nine through thirty one by the forenamed signs the approach of the described catastrophe would be as certainly discernible as the approach of summer by the budding of the fig tree the existing generation would by all that was true live to witness it though its more precise period was known to god only verses thirty two through thirty six but after the usual manner of mankind what follows mark and luke partly have not at all partly not in this connection they would allow the advent of the messiah as formerly the deluge to overtake them in thoughtless security verses thirty seven through thirty nine and yet it would be an extremely critical period in which those who stood in the closest relation to each other would be delivered over to entirely opposite destinies verses forty and forty one hence watchfulness would be requisite as in all cases where the period of a decisive issue is uncertain an admonition which is then illustrated by the image of the master of the house and the thief verses forty three and forty four of the servant to whom his lord when about to travel entrusted the rule of his house verses forty five through fifty one of the wise and foolish virgins chapter twenty five verses one through thirteen and lastly of the talents verses fourteen through thirty 
Hereupon follows a description of the solemn judgment, which the Messiah would hold over all nations, and in which, according as the duties of humanity were observed or neglected, he would award blessedness or misery. Verses 31 through 46. Thus, in these discourses, Jesus announces that shortly, chapter 24, verse 29, after that calamity which, especially according to the representation in Luke's gospel, we must identify with the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, and within the term of the cotemporary generation, verse 34, he would visibly make his second advent in the clouds, and terminate the existing dispensation. Now, as it will soon be eighteen centuries since the destruction of Jerusalem, and an equally long period since the generation cotemporary with Jesus disappeared from the earth, while his visible return and the end of the world which he associated with it have not taken place, the announcement of Jesus appears so far to have been erroneous. Already in the first age of Christianity, when the return of Christ was delayed longer than had been anticipated, there arose, according to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and following, scoffers asking, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In modern times, the inference which may apparently be drawn from the above consideration, to the disadvantage of Jesus and the apostles, has been by no one more pointedly expressed than by the Wolfenbüttel fragmentist. No promise throughout the whole scriptures, he thinks, is on the one hand more definitely expressed, and on the other has turned out more fragrantly false than this, which yet forms one of the main pillars of Christianity. And he does not see in this a mere error, but a premeditated deception on the part of the apostles, to whom, and not to Jesus himself, he attributes that promise, and the discourses in which it is contained. A deception induced by the necessity of alluring the people on whose contributions they wished to subsist, by the promise of a speedy reward, and discernible by the boldness of their attempts to evade the doubts springing from the protracted delay of the return of Christ. Paul, for example, in the second epistle to the Thessalonians, sheltering himself in obscure phrases, and Peter, in his second epistle, resorting to the preposterous expedient of appealing to the divine mode of reckoning time, in which a thousand years are equal to one day. Such inferences from the discourse before us would inflict a fatal wound on Christianity. Hence, it is natural that exegetes should endeavor by all means to obviate them. And, as the whole difficulty consists in Jesus having apparently placed an event now long past, in immediate chronological connection with one still future, three expedients are possible. Either to deny that Jesus in part spoke of something now past, and to allege that he spoke solely of what is still future, or to deny that a part of his discourse 
relates to something still future, and thus to refer the entire prediction to what is already lying in the past? Or lastly, to admit that the discourse of Jesus does indeed partly refer to something which is still future to us, but either to deny that he places the two series of events in immediate chronological succession, or to maintain that he has also noticed what is intermediate. Some of the fathers of the church, as Irenaeus and Hilary, yet living in the primitive expectation of the return of Christ, and at the same time not so practiced in regular exegesis as to be incapable of overlooking certain difficulties attendant on a desirable interpretation, referred the entire prediction from its commencement in Matthew chapter 24 to its end in Matthew chapter 25 to the still future return of Christ to judgment. But as this interpretation admits that Jesus in the commencement of his discourse uses the destruction of Jerusalem as a type of the final catastrophe, it virtually nullifies itself. For what does that admission signify but that the discourse of Jesus, in the first instance, produces the impression that he spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem, that is, of something now past, and that only more extended reflection and combination can give it a relation to something still lying in futurity. To modern rationalism, based as it was on naturalistic principles, the hope of the second advent of Christ was in every form annihilated. Hence, not scrupling at any exegetical violence for the sake of removing from Scripture what was discordant with its preconceived system, it threw itself on the opposite side, and hazarded the attempt to refer the discourses in question, in their entire tenor, solely to the destruction of Jerusalem, and the events which immediately preceded and followed it. According to this interpretation, the end spoken of is only the cessation of the Judeo-Gentile economy of the world. What it said of the advent of Christ in the clouds is only a figurative description of the promulgation and triumph of his doctrine. The assembling of the nations to judgment and the sending of some into blessedness and others into condemnation is an image of the happy consequences which would result from embracing the doctrine and cause of Jesus, and the evil consequences attendant on indifference or hostility to them. But in this explanation there is a want of similarity between the symbols and the ideas represented, which is not only unprecedented in itself, but particularly inconceivable in this case, since Jesus is here addressing minds of Jewish culture, and must therefore be aware that what he said of the Messiah's advent in the clouds, of the judgment, and the end of the existing period of the world, would be understood in the most literal sense. It thus appears that the discourse of Jesus will not, as a whole, admit of being referred either to the destruction of the Jewish state, or to the events at the end of the world, it would therefore be necessarily referred 
to something distinct from both, if this twofold impossibility adhered alike to all its parts. But the case is not so, for while, on the one hand, what is said, Matthew chapter 24, verses 2 and 3 and 15 and following, of the devastation of the temple cannot be referred to the end of the world. On the other hand, what is predicted, chapter 25, verse 31 and following, of the judgment to be held by the Son of Man, will not suit the destruction of Jerusalem. As, according to this, in the earlier part of the discourse of Jesus, the destruction of Jerusalem is the predominant subject, but in the subsequent part, the end of all things. It is possible to make a division so as to refer the former to the more proximate event, the latter to the more remote one. This is the middle path which has been taken by the majority of modern exegetes. And here the only question is, where is the partition to be made? As it must present a space of time within which the whole period from the destruction of Jerusalem to the last day may be supposed to fall, and which therefore would include many centuries, it must, one would think, be plainly indicated, so as to be easily and unanimously found. It is no good augury for the plan that this unanimity does not exist, that, on the contrary, the required division is made in widely different parts of the discourse of Jesus. Thus much, on the one hand, appeared to be decided, that at least the close of the twenty-fifth chapter, from verse thirty-one, with its description of the solemn tribunal which the Messiah, surrounded by his angels, would hold over all nations, cannot be referred to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. Hence, many theologians believed that they could fix the boundary here, retaining the relation to the end of the Jewish state until chapter 25, verse 30, and at this point making the transition to the end of the world. On the very first glance at this explanation, it must appear strange that the great chasm which it supposes to exist between verses 30 and 31 is marked simply by a de. Moreover, not only are the darkening of the sun and moon, earthquakes, and falling of the stars understood as a mere image of the subversion of the Jewish state and worship, but when, chapter 24, verse 31, it is said of the Messiah that he will come in the clouds, this is supposed to mean invisibly, with power, only observable by the effects he produces, with great glory, with such as consists in the conclusions which may be drawn from those effects, while the angels who gather together the nations by the sound of the trumpet are supposed to represent the apostles preaching the gospel. Quite erroneously, appeal is made, in support of this merely figurative meaning, to the prophetic pictures of the divine day of judgment. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 9 and following, chapter 24 verse 18 and following, Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 23 and following, Ezekiel chapter 32 verse 7 and following, 
Joel chapter 3 verse 3 and following, Amos chapter 8 verse 9, farther to descriptions, such as Judges chapter 5 verse 20, Acts chapter 2, chapter 17 and following. In those prophetic passages, real eclipses of the sun and moon, earthquakes, and the like, are intended, and are described as prodigies which will accompany the predicted catastrophe. The song of Deborah, again, celebrates a real participation of heaven in the battle against Sisera, a participation which, in the narrative, chapter 4, verse 15, is ascribed to God himself in the song, to his heavenly hosts. Lastly, Peter expects that the outpouring of the Spirit will be succeeded by the appearances in the heavens, promised among the signs of the great day of the Lord. The attempt to effect a division near the end of the discourse, at chapter 25, verse 30, failing, from its rendering much that goes before incapable of explanation, the next expedient is to retreat as far towards the commencement as possible, by considering how far it is inevitable to recognize a relation to the immediate future. The first resting place is after chapter 24, verse 28, for what is said, up to this point, of war and other calamities, of the abomination in the temple, of the necessity for speedy flight, in order to escape unprecedented misery, cannot be divested of a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem without the greatest violence, while what follows concerning the appearance of the Son of Man in the clouds, etc., just as imperatively demands an application to the last day. But in the first place, it appears incomprehensible how the enormous interval, which on this explanation also is supposed to fall between the one portion of the discourse and the other, can be introduced between two verses, of all others, which Matthew connects by an adverb expressive of the shortest possible time, eutheos. It has been sought to remove this inconvenience by the assertion that eutheos does not here signify the quick succession of the one incident on the other, but only the unexpected occurrence of an event, and that consequently what is here said amounts merely to this. Suddenly, at some period, how distant is undetermined, after the calamities attendant on the destruction of Jerusalem, the Messiah will visibly appear. Such an interpretation of eutheos is, as Olhausen correctly perceives, merely a desperate resource. But even were it otherwise, it would afford no real aid, since not only does Mark, in his parallel passage, verse 24, by the words, in those days, after that tribulation, place the events which he proceeds to mention in uninterrupted chronological succession with those which he had before detailed, but also shortly after this point in each of the narratives, Matthew verse 34 and parallel passages, we find the assurance that all this will be witnessed by the existing generation. As thus the opinion 
that from verse 29, everything relates to the return of Christ to judge the world, was threatened with annihilation by verse 34. The word genea, as the Wolfenbüttel fragmentist complains, was put to the torture, that it might cease to bear witness against this mode of division. At one time, it is made to signify the Jewish nation, at another, the adherents of Jesus. And of both the one and the other, Jesus is supposed to say that it will, how many generations hence being left uncertain, be still in existence on the arrival of that catastrophe. So to explain the verse in question, that it may not contain a determination of time, is even maintained to be necessary on a consideration of the context, verse 35. For as in this Jesus declares it impossible to determine the period of that catastrophe, he cannot immediately before have given such a determination, in the assurance that his cotemporaries would yet live to see all of which he had been speaking. But this alleged necessity, so to interpret the word genea, has long been dissipated by the distinction between an inexact indication of the space of time, beyond which the event will not be deferred, and the precise determination of the epoch at which it will occur. The former Jesus gives, the latter he declares himself unable to give. But the very possibility of interpreting ganea in the above manner vanishes when it is considered that in connection with a verb of time, and without anything to imply a special application, genea cannot have any other than its original sense, that is, generation, age, that in a passage aiming to determine the signs of the Messiah's advent, it would be very unsuitable to introduce a declaration which, instead of giving any information concerning the arrival of that catastrophe, should rather treat of the duration of the Jewish nation, or of the Christian community, of which nothing had previously been said. That, moreover, already at verse 33, in the words, Ye, when ye shall see all these things, know, etc., it is presupposed that the parties addressed would witness the approach of the event in question. And lastly, that in another passage, Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, and parallel passages, the certainty of living to see the coming of the Son of Man is asserted not simply of this generation, but of some standing here, whereby it is shown in the most decisive manner that in the present passage also, Jesus intended by the above expression the race of his cotemporaries, who were not to have become extinct before that catastrophe should occur. Unable to deny this, and yet anxious to separate as widely as possible the end of the world here announced and the age of Jesus, others would find in the declaration before us nothing more than this. The events hitherto described will begin to be fulfilled in the present age, though their complete fulfillment may yet be deferred many centuries. 
but when already at verse eight the subject is said to be the beginning of the tribulation while from verse fourteen we have a description of the end of the present period of the world which that tribulation would introduce and it is here verse thirty four said the existing generation shall not pass away until all these things be fulfilled we must inevitably understand by all these things not merely the beginning but also the last mentioned events at the end of the world thus there is still at verse thirty four something which must be referred to an event very near to the time of jesus hence the discourse of jesus cannot from so early a point as verse twenty nine refer to the end of the world an epoch so far distant and the division must be made somewhat farther on after verse thirty five or forty two but on this plan expressions are thrown into the first part of the discourse which resist the assigned application to the time of the destruction of jerusalem the glorious advent of christ in the clouds and the assembling of all nations by angels verse thirty and following must be regarded as the same extravagant figures which formerly forbade our acceptance of another mode of division thus the declaration verse thirty four which together with the preceding symbolical discourse on the fig tree verse thirty two and following and the appended asseveration verse thirty five must refer to a very near event has both before and after it expressions which can only relate to the more distant catastrophe hence it has appeared to some as a sort of oasis in the discourse having a sense isolated from the immediate context schott for instance supposes that up to verse twenty six jesus had been speaking of the destruction of jerusalem that at verse twenty seven he does indeed make a transition to the events at the end of the present period of the world but that at verse thirty two he reverts to the original subject the destruction of jerusalem and only at verse thirty six proceeds again to speak of the end of the world but this is to hew the text in pieces out of desperation jesus cannot possibly have spoken with so little order and coherence still less can he have so linked his sentences together as to give no intimation of such abrupt transitions nor is this imputed to him by the most recent critics according to them it is the evangelist who has joined together not in the best order distinct and heterogeneous declarations of jesus matthew indeed admits schultz imagined that these discourses were spoken without intermission and only arbitrariness and violence can in this respect sever them from each other but hardly did jesus himself deliver them in this consecutive manner and with this imprint of unity the various phases of his coming thinks seifert his figurative appearance at the destruction of jerusalem and his literal appearance at the last day though they may not have been expressly discriminated 
were certainly not positively connected by Jesus. But subjects which he spoke of in succession were, from their obscurity, confused together by the evangelist. And, as in this instance, there recurs the difference between Matthew and Luke, that what Matthew represents as being spoken on a single occasion, Luke distributes into separate discourses, to which it is also to be added that much of what Matthew gives, Luke either has not, or has it in a different form. Therefore, Schleiermacher believed himself warranted to rectify the composition of Matthew by that of Luke, and to maintain that while in Luke the two separate discourses, chapter 17, verse 22 and following, and chapter 21, verse 5 and following, have each their appropriate connection and their indubitable application, in Matthew, chapters 24 and 25, by the blending of those two discourses and the introduction of portions of other discourses, the connection is destroyed and the application obscured. According to this, the discourse, Luke chapter 21, taken alone, contains nothing which outsteps the reference to the capture of Jerusalem and the accompanying events. Yet here also, verse 27, we find the declaration, Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. And when Schleiermacher explains this as a mere image representing the revelation of the religious significance of the political and natural events before described, he falls into a violence of interpretation which overturns his entire opinion as to the natural relation of these accounts. If, then, in the connection of the end of all things with the destruction of Jerusalem, Matthew by no means stands alone, but is connected by Luke, to say nothing of Mark, whose account in this instance is an extract from Matthew. We may, it is true, conclude that, as in other discourses of Jesus, so perhaps in this also, many things which were uttered at different times are associated, but there is nothing to warrant the supposition that precisely what relates to the two events, which in our idea are so remote from each other, is the foreign matter, especially since we see, from the unanimous representation of the remaining New Testament writings, that the primitive church expected, as a speedy issue, the return of Christ, together with the end of the present period of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, chapter 15, verse 51, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 and following, James chapter 5, verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 and 3, chapter 3 verse 11, chapter 22 verses 7, 10, 12, and 20. Thus it is impossible to evade the acknowledgment that in this discourse, if we do not mutilate it to suit our own views, Jesus at first speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem, and farther on, and until the close, of his return at the end of all things, and that he places the two events in immediate connection. There remains, therefore, 
but one expedient for vindicating the correctness of his announcement, namely, on the one hand, to assign the coming of which he speaks to the future, but, on the other hand, to bring it at the same time into the present. Instead of a merely future, to make it a perpetual coming. The whole history of the world, it is said, since the first appearance of Christ, is an invisible return on his part, a spiritual judgment which he holds over mankind. Of this, the destruction of Jerusalem, in our passage until verse 28, is only the first act. In immediate succession comes the revolution effected among mankind by the publication of the gospel, a revolution which is to be carried on in a series of acts and epochs, until the end of all things, when the judgment gradually effected in the history of the world will be made known by an all-comprehending final revelation. But the famous utterance of the poet, spoken from the inmost depth of modern conviction, is ill-adapted to become the key of a discourse, which more than any other has its root in the point of view proper to the ancient world. To regard the judgment of the world, the coming of Christ, as something successive, is a mode of conception in the most direct opposition to that of the New Testament. The very expressions by which it designates that catastrophe as that day, or the last day, show that it is to be thought of as momentary, the end of the age, verse 3, concerning the signs of which the apostles inquire, and which Jesus elsewhere, Matthew chapter 13, verse 39, represents under the image of the harvest, can only be the final close of the course of the world, not something which is gradually effected during this course. When Jesus compares his coming to lightning, chapter 24, verse 27, and to the entrance of the thief in the night, verse 43, he represents it as one sudden event, and not as a series of events. If we consider, in addition to this, the extravagant figures, which it is not less necessary to suppose on this interpretation, then on the above-mentioned reference of the twenty-fourth chapter to the destruction of Jerusalem, it will appear necessary to abstain from this expedient, as from all the previous ones. Thus, the last attempt to discover in the discourse before us the immense interval which, looking from our position in the present day, is fixed between the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of all things, having failed, we are taught practically that that interval lies only in our own conception, which we are not justified in introducing into the text. And when we consider that we owe our idea of that interval only to the experience of many centuries, which have elapsed since the destruction of Jerusalem, it cannot be difficult to us to imagine how the author of this discourse, who had not had this experience, might entertain the belief that shortly after the fall of the Jewish sanctuary, the world itself, of which, in the Jewish idea, that sanctuary was the center, would also come to an end, and the Messiah appear in judgment. End of section 115